Christina. Hey, Chris. How are you doing today? I am awesome. How are you? Fabulous. It's officially fall here uh, in Seattle. Our, I like, I like that uh, you looked, upon the leaves. You looked up and to the right. Is fall right up there in your view? It is. It's it's hanging out over there in the corner. Oh, it's, right on. Uh, you have a little a little a little fall globe in your office. That you look at <laughs> no. next to no, your snow I'm, globe. Uh, it's fall. Working from home today. Working from home and have in my little library and enjoying the uh, the light right and on. colors of fall. Well, you know, I realized last spring. I know I'm. I introduced everyone to Malika. And I probably talked a little bit uh, at the time when when we would have when we would be co-hosting. But since Kara has come back, we've still been mixing up our co-hosts. And I haven't explained to any any of our listeners why we're doing that, except for sort of cryptic things that I throw in at the end of interviews to freak people out. Like Kara <laughs> might be leaving or something like that. Last time she was like, thanks for throwing me under the bus. Kara's not leaving, everyone. <laughs> Kara and I do this every week. And uh, it's, it's a lot of work. And um, we get a little tired. And we also want to make sure that we can produce a quality show. So we mm-hmm. don't want to be burned out um, and doing it half-assed. But we we enjoy it. And there's a lot of people that we want to talk to. So rather than go back to a less frequent schedule, we thought, one, we have a, a whole team of people that we have worked with now over the years who all now have experience on the podcast and an interest in public engagement. And so we thought it would be a really great opportunity for y'all if we could give you the opportunity to fill in and and have guest hosting opportunities um, since you already know us and we already have reports with each other. So that would give folks experience. And also it'll build, I'm hoping, sustainability for the podcast because I do like doing it. And I know we put our faces and names on it, but we can change that. And I like to think it's a great service for our community. And I hope that when Kara and I move on to other things, that um, if there is still a thirst for podcasts, because formats change, that we'll have people who are trained and interested in taking it over. So that is why, dear listeners, you have been meeting so many folks. I hope that you enjoy their voices as much as you have clearly enjoyed ours. I only say that because you subscribe and there are 200 listens to every episode within two weeks of release, which I'm just amazed Woo-hoo. by. Yep. We love our listeners. We Y'all love our listeners. Absolutely amazing. They are. And we love our co-hosts and we love our guests. Who are we talking to today, Christina? We are talking to Molly Fox. Molly Fox is just wonderful. Uh, I, as a personal note, have read, uh, just a, a ton of her of her work, and I'm so excited to be co-hosting this with you today. Molly Fox is a associate professor of anthropology at UCLA uh, with the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences and Bioanth. Am I understanding that? So she started off um, getting her BA at Yale with with Rich Ribieskus, who is our uh, president elect for HBA and has been on the show. Uh, we talked to him about his book, uh, How Men Age, um, and I had a lot of ennui that episode. Uh, she was also a double major in anthropology and theater, and she actually did a, a project as an undergraduate that I, I noted was called a dissertation, so I'm thinking it was an honors thing called How Human Populations Have Differentially Responded to the Selective Pressure of Preeclampsia. So she's been on this track oh. for a while, yeah. 
did a PhD in bioanthropology with Leslie Knapp at Cambridge. Um, and that was called The Evolution of Postmenopausal Longevity and the Preservation of Cognitive Function. And then she did a postdoc at UC Irvine in the School of Medicine with Laura Glenn, uh, Kurt Sandman, and Pathic Wadwa. And that was on biobehavioral processes and fetal programming. Then she had an assistant professorship in the Department of Pediatrics at UC Irvine and has been at UCLA since 2016. So you, you've read her work. What led you to read her work? I work um, pretty closely with uh, changes in bone mineral density, bone health, bone aging, um, and particularly surrounding uh, reproductive costs. So getting to read some of the ways that she writes about motherhood and writes about experiences and reproduction and the biology that goes along with that was uh, really interesting. I like the way that she she approaches some some of the age-old questions and comes up with new ones also. Yeah. I was really taken with the integration theory here. So one of the things I struggle with when I write, and I see this with students, is when we say, what's your theory? And then people pull in like three. Uh, weaving them together is often difficult. Yeah, so, that's the tough part. Uh-huh. So weaving grandmother hypothesis with DOHAD, Developmental Origins of Health and Adult Disease, I, I, I found that very elegant. Have you met, met Molly? I've not had the pleasure. Uh-huh. You know, I don't think I have either, but I did meet her postdoc, Kyle Wiley, who I saw all over these papers, too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. shall we meet her? Yeah, let's do all it. All right, let's do it. Hello. Hi. How are you? Welcome to Sausage of Science. Nice to meet you guys. Happy to be here. I'm Chris, and I am he, him. I'm Molly. I'm Christina. I'm a grad student at the University of Washington, and I'm co-hosting with Chris today. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Yeah. Hi. We want to we want to welcome you to the Sausage of Science. And I don't think we have met in person yet. Am I correct? No, we have only met in these little Zoom boxes as of this moment. So right on. I'm, glad, so I'm glad something has been corrected uh, for both of you guys. Uh, awesome. We're all here together. I know we've met some of your your students. I remember meeting Kyle. Uh, I think he's a postdoc in your lab? Yeah, postdoc. Yeah, I met him at the meetings this past uh, year. And, you know, we're all working in uh, with, with similar theory. And and then I pull your your website. You have a great web page, by the way. This is a model. Oh, yeah, this is a model listener. So and, and I say this in, in all seriousness, because one of the things we try to do is help people with their public engagement and having a, your, I would say, a, a digital portfolio and a website are basically the same thing. And yours clearly says digital resume, right? That is laid out very nicely. So we we got to learn all about you, and we just introduced. We went through from Rick Ribieskis all the way up until uh, to where you are now. We did. Oh, I, I wish I had heard this life story. I could have uh, learned a thing or two. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's all it's all on your website. You can read about it at your leisure. <laughs> so uh, we appreciate uh, <laughs> that scholars make themselves readily findable on the internet. That's the first step in making research accessible: is making yourself accessible. So we always start the sausage of science is a play on words. We want to know how the how science is made. So how the sausage is made. We always start off the same way. We did read about you uh, and we talked a little bit about that, but we it doesn't tell us about your motivation. So what interested you first and foremost about uh, anthropology? Why did you pursue it as a career? Why pair it with theater at, at, at the beginning? And um, what's uh, inspired your obvious interest in reproductive health and, and mothers and grandmothers over the years? 
Well, yeah, it's not a question I get asked very often once you're sort of canalized in um, your life path, you know, looking back in that way is, is kind of a funny exercise, but I think that I probably had a different path than than most uh, most of my colleagues. I mean, like you said, I was I was a I was in theater, very committed, you know, professionally. This was my life plan, my life goal. I was a a, a theater major in undergrad at Yale. I I chose Yale for that specific reason, that purpose. Um, the furthest I could imagine myself branching out would be into film, into screenwriting, um, which was also a sort of contemporary interest. And um, um, yeah, at Yale, I was part of the first class of the musical theater writing program um, that was a sort of combined undergrad graduate writing program. I, I got really um, interested and passionate about uh, musical theater, lyric and book writing. And I was so committed to being uh, <laughs> as as uh, educated in all things theater as possible that I finished the major really fast, really early. Um, I sort of thought of college as like extended summer camp. You can imagine like other people were in classes, you know, pipetting and reading textbooks. And I was like sitting in a circle with our shoes off talking about our feelings and, you know, great undergrad kind of educational experiences that I loved. And um <laughs> I mean, the real way I came to it, honestly, was that my freshman year, you know, at Yale, we had this two week shopping period, they called it, where you don't have to commit to your classes, which, you know, the second I stepped onto a college campus, I interpreted as, oh, you don't have to go to class for the first two weeks. This is amazing. So I didn't go to any classes and I didn't even look into what the class options were. And so then I had this book of, you know, a list of a million classes by the day I had to hand in my schedule, I was so overwhelmed. And I had at that time been um, cast in the main stage play. And so there was another freshman girl in the main stage play who I was friends with. And I just asked her what courses she was enrolled in. And I just copied down her schedule and handed it into <laughs> to, to, to my college dean. And she happened to be an introduction to biological anthropology with Rick Previescus. So this is how I ended up in this class. I just sort of followed her there. <laughs> that is actually... Everyone always says their path is different. Yours is the first one that's true. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, before you finish, I want to say my lab is next door to the costume department. I'm in the theater building below the theater. Everything you just described is true. I have a grass patch outside my window. They sit out there in a circle talking about their feelings. I love it. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a college education as far as I remember. And <laughs> yeah, and in that course, you know, I, I was really interested in in everything that that we were learning but i wasn't i didn't have a natural talent for it because it just wasn't where my head was you know i um i i i distinctly remember an exam that he gave where we had to um label the parts of the human life history uh like infancy adolescence adulthood and i got it wrong like i could not label the parts of the human lifespan correctly like I, I think I like put you know childhood after adolescence or something I mean like it was like that level of of a total lack of knowledge so but but it just so happened that I, I kind of got hooked on the kinds of things he was talking about and a lot of what you know my um elective classes outside of the theater major happened to just continue to fall into this kind of human evolution 
area. Um, and he had a, a PhD student at the time. And again, I was sort of young and naive. I didn't know the difference between a professor and a PhD student. They were all just these like smart grownups teaching us. And um, her name's Stephanie Anestis, and she was teaching courses on female reproductive ecology. And I just got really interested in the things that she was saying. I was sort of interested in the uh, in female reproductive justice and the medicalization of birth. And and yeah, for me, it was kind of a hobby on the side because I was destined to you know write the next big Broadway hit. So this was just a, a sort of hobby that I was getting into. And at one, at some point in, in my college career, my mother kind of like gently said, you know, maybe you could think about adding this anthropology thing as like a second major. Um, we don't have minors there. So, you know, a double major. And I was open to it. And so like, I think that eventually I am the only person who went into academia for the stability and the money. You know, I was like, this is like a stable life choice that is, you know, very, uh, you know, you can have like a real job that is not, you know, the hustle of theater and the professional life in theater is, is you know, for all of our complaints about academia, it's a, it's a stable life. It can be a stable life with a salary, which, you know, are things that are not to be taken for granted by us theater majors. So, you know, I, I, I went on an archaeological dig and learned that archaeology was not where my future would lie but you know i enjoyed it but it was you know i i i didn't have the the skill set there um and then applied to graduate programs and i only applied to two um mphil programs which is a, a uk masters um at ucl and at cambridge and when i was visiting cambridge my later to be advisor, um, Leslie Knapp, who's now the chair of anthropology at Utah, but was at Cambridge for, for many years. Um, uh, she said, why did you apply to the MPhil, not the PhD? And I said, well, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for this, because I always thought I'll come to England for nine months, I'll do this anthropology uh, master's, and then I'll go back to New York and go to Tisch and, you know, get my MFA, of course, like all my friends are doing. Um and she said, oh, but you did a U.S. undergrad with a with a thesis. That's like a four year degree with a thesis here in the U.K. It's, you know, undergrad is three years. And so it's sort of the equivalent of the MPhil. So you don't need to do that. And she crossed it off and wrote Ph.D. And I thought, OK, well, I'll deal with this later. And then I never did. And here I am. Now I'm a tenured professor. Oh, <laughs> And I'll know wow. <laughs> there's like. And you you made us cross one of them off, but there's also multiple postdocs in there. Like your your pedigree looks the opposite. It looks so pre-planned. You're li- like I said, you're literally you are the outlier. Yeah. Well, you know, the um let me just say that I am not the outlier in my family because I have a twin who is also an anthropology professor. And she was a photographer. And so we were this like artsy twin pair. And, you know, she ended up finding a path towards visual anthropology leading to sociocultural. So to me, this is like a really natural way to become an anthropology professor. Oh my God, what's your sister's name? Samantha Fox. She's in the other room. She's visiting. You can uh, talk to her after this. <laughs> just absolutely blown by this. I know. I want to have them both on my at the mouth same hanging time. open. Don't you want to interview what? them both at the same time? What? So I, I don't, what you, I don't know what your sister's happening in. I, <laughs> fascinating. This is just absolutely incredible. 
you talked about how your sister brought visual anthropology as uh, with her background in photography into uh, how she approaches anthropology. And I'm just so curious how your theater background, because that it sounds like that is your first love, sort of gloms on to and, and informs how you're approaching your anthropological questions or how you're teaching or hmm. how, because you're so good at weaving theory together and obviously incredible life circumstances into something that is at least appears to be so clean and well-developed and and appears to be so incredibly well thought out and beautiful and elegant. Um, how does theater weave with anthropology for you? How do you weave those together? Well, you've said a lot of very kind things, so thank you. Um, I, um... <laughs> They're all true. Well, I think for me, it was actually the opposite was happening, which was, you know, despite my best efforts to, you know, not not be this uh, academic and to to be this artist, I I actually, you know, while I was, I guess, in the process that, you know, I was unself-aware in this transition, like the last plays I wrote, I, I wrote a play about menopause, you know, I was like studying female reproductive life history. I've, you know, I've, I've, I wrote another play, um, you know, it was performed at the was it the O'Neill Theater in New York? And it was um, an older woman um, with her, you find out at some point, younger self, um, sort of on a on a boat on the River Styx, like looking back at her own life. And so, you know, these like, I guess I kept exploring these questions about female reproductive life history from an artistic point of view when I was really moving towards being interested in them in a more sort of scientific way. So it was actually that the biological anthropology was starting to bleed into to the theater more so than the opposite, I would say. I mean, otherwise it would only be training in, you know, presentation abilities and 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 in some sort of appreciation for the importance of storytelling and um an aesthetic in science. But I think a lot of my colleagues, you know, recognize that. Yeah, I do too. In fact, it made me think of Michelle Besenson's session last year on the unpresentation, or uh, and they're doing it again uh, at AABA. I don't know if you if you saw that, but it was you know non traditional approaches at art. And have you staged your play? Thank yeah, you. yeah, I have. Um, I had a um, a musical adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher, the Edgar Allan Poe story that um, we put up um, the summer right before I, I moved to England to start my PhD at the International Fringe Festival in New York. And we won Best Musical. It was on the front page of the art section of the New York Times to brag a little bit. It was a very exciting time. And then I left it all behind. To... But, but you said you wrote one about uh, female reproductive health. Yeah. 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 And that and was in new york as well um we should bring that back and do it at the meeting i don't know i you know it, maybe my my talents i think have have developed more in in the sciences and I, right. I feel more, we'll more, just put that aside for jokes <laughs> until we can get to know each other well enough to talk you into that <laughs> and we will talk you in into that that's that is both a promise and and a threat no all right we'll quit pestering you about about theater and uh and move on to your work which is uh you have so many great studies going on um but we do love our journal so we'll focus on the ajhb article <laughs> that we love so much um so the journal does support us thank you so much um, and the title is how prenatal cortisol levels relate to grandmother mother relationships among a cohort of latina women and let's just start with why why the focus on mothers and grandmothers in your research? You talked a little bit about how it's a, a theme you've been exploring, but 
how does that carry over into your research as something specifically that you're you're picking apart and investigating? Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll just mention that all of the co-authors on this paper are PhD students. So those of you who are uh, looking wonderful. to hire, please uh, turn your attention to all these wonderful um, students and, and postdocs of mine. Um, so uh, yeah, I love I love grannies. I love talking about them, thinking about them. You know, the the this research area is um, you know interesting to me because I guess from an evolutionary point of view, I'm really fascinated by the way that that selection works at the interface between generations, and so the grandmother to mother to child sort of trajectory is is really interesting. Um, and when we look at ourselves as humans as a species. Um, we have a highly interdependent way of rearing children that is uh, somewhat unique in the animal kingdom, right? A human mother has has multiple children of overlapping periods of dependency of all different ages. So they all have different needs. And the only way that it's possible to maintain this kind of family structure and this kind of reproductive pattern is by having help from others, which some people talk about as cooperative breeding or communal breeding, or, you know, there's different there's debates out there about what kind of terminology best describes the human condition. But we are uh, a species that is characterized by aloe mothering. So, you know, helpers at the nest, um, <clears throat> assisting mothers in various ways. And so, so yeah, so I guess my interest is in the um, the biological signatures and um, the sort of biobehavioral context of those family dynamics. Um, and in this particular paper, this uh, AJHB paper, thank you journal, um, <laughs> we were interested in kind of rewinding uh, a little bit of uh, backwards in in the child's lifespan. And by that, I mean that there's been a long history of biological anthropologists studying the grandmother-grandchild relationship and how grandmothers can offset some of a mother's um, domestic and child-rearing and um, other sort of labor burdens, um, freeing her up to have more offspring in, in rapid succession with shorter interbirth intervals than would otherwise be possible. And so there's certainly a recognition that grandmothers and others, um, you know, uh, play important roles in, in the lives and experiences of mothers. And um, I was interested in exploring that idea prenatally. So I was interested in saying, is the grandmother having some sort of effect and some sort of role in the mother's reproductive experience and the child's uh, development and, and health and well-being, even in the stage before it's born. So while the baby is still developing um, in the mother's body. And so that's why we're focusing in this in this study and in, on this paper and, and in other papers in my lab um, on the sort of future grandmother. So the, the role of the pregnant woman's mother and mother-in-law. Yeah, I like that actually, and my mom thanks you because right grandmother hypothesis is is generally targeting maternal grandmothers, and and you actually include uh, maternal and paternal grandmothers, and you integrate grandmother hypothesis theory with DOHAD developmental origins of health and adult disease. So, what was your prediction in terms of what you were testing and 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 the potential like the DOHAD implications for that? Sure. And uh, yeah, respect to your mother. Um, 
thank you for her her appreciation. Uh, I, I have I have triplet boys, so we had to have all the help. That's that's why I throw that out there. Yeah. All right. Oh well. Respect to all of you involved in that process. I'm sure it was. It's you know it's not easy, but very happy to hear. Um, as a multiple myself, so um, dohat. So dohat is this idea that um, at especially early stages of um, the lifespan, there is a lot of plasticity or flexibility in the way that traits can develop, right? Some of our traits are determined very directly and simply by our DNA sequence. And for other traits, our DNA sequence allows any number of possible outcomes depending on the conditions encountered during um, usually early life phases of development. The, that, that really is the motivation for this paper because we are interested in the possibility that if grandmothers can exert some sort of influence or some sort of role this early in the grandchild's um, developmental journey, that it could have amplified implications for the child's development and health um, and thereby for the mother's you know, reproductive fitness and, and experience. That's part, one of the reasons we're looking at this prenatal or pregnancy kind of stage of life. And we were interested in the effect of um, the grandmother-mother relationship on cortisol levels in pregnancy. So cortisol is a steroid hormone. Um, and I'm sure your listeners are aware that it's it gets this reputation for being the stress hormone. That's is a strong oversimplification of of a of a molecule that's involved in many biological processes, but has been you know uh, is a, recognized as a central player in um, you know HPA stress responsivity in pregnancy. It has a lot of really interesting roles. It also seems to be involved in coordinating the pace of of gestation and the timing of organ development in uh, in the maturation in in the fetus and ultimately um, through a coordinated process involving another hormone called CRH, um, the timing of birth itself. So the um, possibility that grandmother mother relationships could be somehow connected to cortisol has implications both for understanding stress, like psychological and biological stress in pregnancy, um, and also for understanding the more sort of like evolutionary life history um, approach of how the involvement of a grandmother at this critical early stage of life might uh, be involved in life history scheduling. That was a super sciencey answer. So I hope that's okay. <laughs> it was great. You in this paper, you're focusing on Latino women. Why is that? So this was part of a, of, first of all, a larger research program in my lab. Um, we call this the Mother's Cultural Experiences Study. It's um, it, it involves a lot of different elements, and um, it's a, a longitudinal study of Latina um, pregnant women, and we follow the who follow them through pregnancy and um, uh, through the toddlerhood of, of their kids. And there are various reasons for one. One that's quite relevant to this paper is that. Um, the Latino community in the U.S. has the um, highest rate of three-generation households. And so in order to answer these questions about multi-generational experiences, especially involving grandmothers um, here in our local community in, in Southern California, this is a, you know, a fantastic um, group to work with. This work also endeavors to address um, social inequities and health disparities because the Latino community faces really disproportionate health disparities, particularly in maternal child health. 
Um, and so we're also interested in trying to understand their experiences of both risk and resilience to hopefully contribute to an effort to alleviate some of these um, health disparities and improve you know, health equity. So we have multiple reasons um, to look at this. You know, also some of some of my work in, in this in this area looks at um, sociopolitical victimization of this community. So this cohort was recruited from 2018 to 2020, which was a time when, if we all think back here in the U.S., there was a great deal of political rhetoric that targeted this group from multiple angles. There was um, issues related to, first of all, just Latino identity um, that that were top of the news at the time. Um, Latino community was, uh, I'm trying to think of, <laughs> not not to be too political in this in this setting, but the Latino community was was at the nexus of various like political debates, um, especially around immigration um, that were happening. And um, this was, you know, around the time of um, Donald Trump's election and, and um, administration. And there were debates around immigration, as well as around female, uh, women's access to reproductive health care. So this was, you know, a group of women who were, you know, seeking reproductive health care, who were from this sort of politically targeted community. So we were interested in how the sort of large context around fetal development um, might affect the mother-child dyad. So when I say context, I mean the context of the intrauterine environment, like the womb itself, the mother's body as the biological context in which development is happening, the family context. So the mother's relationships with various members of her family. This particular paper focuses on her mother and mother-in-law, but you know other members of the family we've explored in other papers, as well as the larger cultural, social, political context in which these dynamics play out. Great answer. And I'm going to ask you a more specific question about one of those other papers in just a second, because you definitely you have a lot that really, really intrigue us in that sense. But first, I want to find out what you found in this study. So sure. correct me if I'm wrong. You guys collected urinary cortisol measures of the maternal and paternal grandmother social support. I think it was relationship quality. I think that was the parent spouse parental relationship quality and then mon- mother's mental health. So, So what did you find? The results of this paper, um, first of all, can be understood just a little bit more detail about the methods, which is that we characterize the relationship between the pregnant woman and her mother, as well as um, the her baby's father's mother. So I'm calling that mother-in-law by shorthand, but only about a third of the women were actually married um, uh, to the baby's father. But um we looked at relationship quality, like you said, we looked at social support, which is slightly different. We also looked at um, the frequency of communication between the two individuals and the geographic proximity. So so how close they live to each other. The first thing we were interested in was just how those relate to the pregnant woman's mental health before we discuss cortisol. And my PhD student, Delaney Knorr, has also explored this question in in another paper. Um, But to um, just say what we found here quickly, we found that um, the pregnant woman's relationship quality and social support from her mother were associated with uh, less depression, less depressive symptoms. And similarly, um, her relationship quality with her mother-in-law was associated with less stress and less anxiety about the pregnancy itself. 
Um, we also found that living closer to your mother-in-law was associated with less depression, lower anxiety about the pregnancy. So that's the relationship between the relationship of the um, pregnant woman um, with her mother and mother-in-law, so the future grandmas, and her mental health and pregnancy. So then the next step was to look at how this relates to cortisol levels. Um, that's this hormone we were talking about, of course. Um, and we found that the um, pregnant woman's relationship quality with her mother and her social support with her mother. So this is the future maternal grandmother, um, as well as the frequency with which she sees her mother um, were all associated with lower cortisol levels. And these were measured in the earlier part of pregnancy, right around the time of um, uh, on average around 12 weeks pregnant. So that sort of transition period from the end of the first trimester to the beginning of the second trimester, like a third of the way through pregnancy was when we looked. And then unexpectedly, we found that having a better relationship quality with the mother-in-law was associated actually with higher cortisol levels. So having a better relationship quality, more social support, seeing the maternal grandmother more frequently was associated with lower cortisol levels, but a better relationship quality with the paternal grandmother, future paternal grandmother was associated with higher cortisol levels. And, and that was counter to our expectation. Why do you think that is? So I can speculate. This is only going to be speculation here. Um, and there are a few different ways to speculate about this. Um, the first is to think of cortisol not necessarily in its role in stress response, but in its role in the um, tempo of fetal maturation and the timing of birth. Um, and again, I really want to stress this is, you know, this is speculative because this was not what we had expected to find. But given that we did, we looked to the literature to see what other anthropologists asking somewhat similar questions have found. There was a paper by Shepard and, and Sear who found in a Guatemalan um, group of women that it was somewhat similar, the frequency of seeing the paternal grandmother in person. And this was this was postpartum. So this was after um, the pregnancy was already over, but it was associated with infants who were shorter in length, like smaller. Um, and so if we would sort of assume that that frequency of seeing each other was, you know, similar prenatally, this would be somewhat consistent with the idea of maybe a, a smaller child and maybe even an earlier birth. And um, um, Eckert Voland and Jan Bays also had found in this historical German population um, in which they've done, you know, these important grandmother studies that have been foundational to our field, they found that the um, geographic proximity uh, of the paternal grandmother was associated with higher infant mortality in the first month of life. So this is also like, these are all the same sort of idea of finding, a, I mean, what I would speculate would be that having higher mortality in the first month of life might be somewhat indicative of having been born earlier. So maybe a, a premature delivery, which could be similar to our observation of higher cortisol levels at, um, at this stage of pregnancy, which have been elsewhere associated with um, uh, higher CRH later in pregnancy and earlier delivery. So um, these, these papers are all reporting a finding that has this sort of like acceleration vibe to it. Uh, There's a, a Leonetti paper that looked at um, a group of women in India where they found that um, the paternal grandmother's presence was associated with um, greater completed fertility 
for women. So living um, closer to the paternal grandmother was associated with a larger number of of babies ultimately for the mom. And so again, that could indicate this sort of like accelerated reproduction. Um, but this is you know something that we need to to break down and examine. And this is my very anthropological interpretation of, of, of our results. And you know, a biomedical perspective would of course sound very different. Do you think that the findings from your paper specifically are the result of just having someone around? this this ability to have someone to help out with a lot of the stressors um and while these are these are women who are in their early stages of pregnancy uh, as i was reading through your paper some of these women have other children around some they're they're living um sort of different types of experiences some of them are on their first pregnancy some of them are, are not on their first pregnancy even yeah. remotely they have different relationships with their partners so do you think that it's the grandmother whether it's maternal or paternal to maternal relationships specifically or is it more of a having another pair of hands around, having having that extra support? Which which do you think it is? It's a really good question, um, and it's yeah, it's a very interesting question. So first of all, I'll just preface my answer by saying that um, all of our models controlled for the presence of the baby's father. Um, so, because we didn't want the relationship with the paternal grandmother to just be a proxy of the relationship with the right, father, right. so so these findings are sort of above and beyond the relationship with the father, um, with the baby's father, which which uh, you know across the field of developmental psychology has been shown to you know be important for women's well being during pregnancy. To answer this, I would first look to the literature in in terms of work that's been done by my colleagues and former mentors like Chris Dunkelshedder, Laura Glynn, um, Kurt Sandman, where they've you know been in studying the the social context, um, social support that women receive in pregnancies and anxiety during pregnancy and how it relates to um, maternal fetal outcomes. And um, certainly there is indication of the, the importance of, of social support in pregnancy writ large um, from other individuals. In this particular community where I work in the you know um, Latina uh, um, cohort in which I'm, I'm conducting this research, one of the suppositions that that I had was that you know given the strong tradition of familism and the importance of especially intergenerational relationships in this particular community, I thought that there could be a distinct importance of that mother-daughter relationship or even um, mother-in-law relationship. And so this paper was motivated by a sort of a priori interest in that specific relationship. Um, another paper that we have published in another journal uh, showed a, a so somewhat similar effect. We didn't look at cortisol in that. It was in a different cohort, but um, similar methods we, we conducted um, without the biomarkers. Um, we found that um, the, the uh, relationship quality with the pregnant woman's adult siblings was also um, important and protective for her mental health in pregnancy. And so again, this is a, a, a class of individuals that's not often looked at in the sort of classic psychological social support literature. Often those studies are more about, do you have someone you can call when you need fill in the blank, which is different than saying like, does having a sister, you know, help you avoid depression during pregnancy or just having better relationships with your siblings or living closer to your siblings? 
Um, and so those are two uh, areas that, that we were interested in. And again, this is, you know, motivated by an anthropological interest in the evolution of aloe mothering, um, as these are the future aunts and uncles of the uh, the future maternal aunts and uncles of the of the baby, you know, we were interested in the possibility that they could exert positive effects even before the baby's born by helping women during this vulnerable period. Um, in my lab, we have uh, I have um, some PhD students who are, who are actually in the process of answering this question that you've asked. So I won't uh, step on their glory by you know answering it, and we're still you know working through the details. But in this particular data set, in this cohort, these are the questions that we're exploring as a next step. We're looking into questions related to other individuals in the woman's life, as well as general availability of social support um, and whether we're seeing similar both psychological and biological um, correlates or of those relationships as well. So the, the jury's still out in this cohort, but the larger literature, you know, is certainly suggestive in that direction. No spoilers. You're on it. No, no, they're, <laughs> they're on it. They're on it. Um, so, well, I wanted to highlight the article you mentioned. It's in Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. And mm-hmm. you, uh, so again, great website, very handy, links to all of them. for, And we will link in the show notes so folks can find that. And you mentioned the political context that your subjects are are dealing with. So one of the articles is a 2022 piece in Social Science and Medicine called how demographics and concerns about the Trump administration relate to prenatal mental health among Latina women. And in this study, you looked at state anxiety as opposed to trait, right? So not like their baseline anxiety, but their circumstantial anxiety, depression, perceived stress, and pregnancy-related anxiety in relation to fears around the Trump presidency. So what'd you find? Okay, so in this study, um, I also want to clarify something I didn't mention before, that in this Mother's Cultural Experiences project that I was talking about, we actually had two waves. And so these are two distinct groups of women. So the cortisol study was done in the the second wave, um, which was the longitudinal study. And this paper um, related to concerns about the Trump administration was actually done in wave one which was a larger um, cross-sectional study of Latina pregnant women in which we did not collect biomarkers, but we did very extensive um, questionnaires. So the timeline is a little bit different because just to understand the sociopolitical context, these women were interviewed um, between January 2017 and May 2018. So this was um, basically starting around, I believe it was like the time of the inauguration of, of President Trump. Uh, and uh, my postdoc, Kyle Wiley, also has a, a paper that explores um, similar questions in the wave two cohort, um, where we sort of continue to be interested in how, as the sociopolitical context in the U.S. changed, um, you know, the the what the effects looked like in our population of interest. We, we had asked the women about a list of different possible concerns that they might have related to um, the uh, election of President Trump. The questions were phrased as, you know, um, in that way. There were also, you know, it was also open-ended. They could they could describe any concerns that they might have. And there was, of course, the option to have no concerns. And this was um, one of the options that, that, that they were given. Um, we were interested in how 
concern, not only just what concerns they had, which was the the first level of interest, but also in how those related to mental health and pregnancy. Because again, pregnancy is a period of high vulnerability for the onset of mood disorders and um, a very vulnerable phase of the lifespan for, for many reasons for women. And so we were interested in understanding how the context in which these women are, are living and operating um, during pregnancy might uh, relate to their mental health. So the most frequently endorsed concern was about former President Trump's racism or support of racists. So nearly 70% of the women marked this as a concern that they had. There's the second most frequently endorsed concern, which uh, 62% of the women described was his attitude towards women or women's rights. And 58% were concerned the risk that members of my family or friends will be deported. This was, uh, I'll just reiterate, this was actually before the family separation policy, or I think it was that was implemented just in the last week of this study. So it's not really reflected here, which is one of the reasons we followed it up in in the next cohort. But then the next question was, how do those concerns actually, or or concerns on any number of topics actually relate to um, anxiety, depression, you know, uh, mental health, and affective disorder risk during pregnancy. And we found that of all of the concerns, the only one that was linked to, and it was it was quite robustly linked to mental health, was concern about President Trump's attitude towards women or women's rights. So this was very interesting because of the possibility that there might be some salience or some special sensitivity to that attitude during a time in your life when you're sort of enacting your role as a woman in this way that that makes you again highly vulnerable and and highly conspicuous as a you know as a pregnant woman and so um, we found that having uh, that endorsing uh, concern for uh, about President Trump's attitude towards women or women's rights was associated with greater state anxiety, so greater feelings of anxiety. The other thing that we had looked at in this paper was about what we called demographics. So we wanted to uh, also check how your sort of like demographic profile relates to mental health and pregnancy. So that includes your own birthplace as well as the birthplace of the baby's biological father. Um, your relationship status as a, as a pregnant woman, your socioeconomic status, age, as well as parity and, and how far along you were in the pregnancy. And of all of these sort of demographic predictors, the only one that was um, predictive of mental health was the expectant parents' birthplaces. So whether they were foreign born or US born was a predictor of, I have to remind myself, sorry, I'm pretty sure it was depression. I remember right. I think it was anxiety rates were higher among U.S. born Latinas relative to foreign born. Yeah, Latinas. exactly. Does that, why do you think that is? Yeah, yeah. So we found that um, being U.S. born was associated with greater anxiety than being foreign born. And again, that this was for both the parents. the The results were were the same whether we looked just at the pregnant woman or at the pregnant woman and her. Um, and the baby's father um, in you know various configurations. So it was a, it was a pretty robust finding. Um, and again, it, it was it was somewhat counter to our sort of initial instinct that we you know thought that there was this sort of political rhetoric that was anti-immigrant, and so being mm-hmm. foreign-born could would potentially be something that would make you more anxious. Um, yeah. Upon further reflection, there you know we we thought that there was sort of um, some logic to, to this possibility. First of all, the places 
that these women were coming from across Latin America um, also have political concerns and political problems. And one possibility is that in comparison to the political conditions um, from which they immigrated, the conditions in the U.S. um, maybe didn't seem quite as bad as they did to the U.S. born community. And I also will mention these women are in Southern California and Californians are somewhat protected from, you know, some of the the federal policies and rhetoric. The culture in California is um, much more, I mean, of a pro-immigrant kind of culture. And also the Latino culture is is more dominant in Southern California than it might be in other parts of the U.S. So, So that's one possibility that the sort of comparison is something that that we that is unmeasured and so you know it's hard to speak to what it is that the foreign born community in this study was actually comparing the US political rhetoric to so so there were you know interesting patterns that we found um such that your place of birth was um an indicator both of mental health during pregnancy as well as um it sort of differentiated what your political concerns were um, and, you know, we again are, you know, can only speculate uh, the sort of like deeper why question of that. And I think that this, you know, this work requires some follow up um, and maybe even indicates the need for more qualitative kind of work in this community um, in the in the pregnant in a pregnant population to really understand how concerns, as well as your own sort of demographic positionality, you know, together can influence your health and well-being in pregnancy. Just a quick follow-up on that, and you may not have an answer if you, especially if you didn't collect these data, but it seems like if there's a an independent relationship between state anxiety and being domestically or foreign-born, did you happen to do the trade anxiety measure as well? And is, we is didn't do trade anxiety in this group. Yeah, we we looked at um, the other anxiety measure we did was pregnancy specific anxiety. Yeah. So that's um, anxiety about the pregnancy itself, fear about how the baby's developing. So it's a, it's actually been shown in several studies, especially by Chris Dunkelshedder's group um, here at UCLA to be a unique indicator um, and, a, and a very important construct in pregnancy. And theoretically, that makes more sense to me. That's why I said if you didn't happen to measure that, we would just move on. But based <laughs> on your finding, that it, it raises that question. But let's let's move on because you have like tons of studies going on. So I want to give you an opportunity to tell listeners about maybe some of your other projects, something that's new or something that's more recent, something that you're excited to share. Sure, sure. So a lot of my work is in Alzheimer's disease, I will say. We haven't talked about that today, but that's where my interest has sort of started and has always percolated and is, you know, a very active area in my lab right now. Um, the two streams of research in in my mind are quite connected because um, a great deal of my work in Alzheimer's is looking at how women's reproductive uh, life history, so um, pregnancies, breastfeeding, this kind of thing, um, reorganize the female um, female physiological systems in ways that actually can alter risk of uh, um, Alzheimer's later in life so that there might be permanent reorganizing effects on the woman's body. I've been, you know, I've been interested in this question sort of from the beginning of my PhD where I was, you know, doing retrospective um, reproductive life history interviews with Alzheimer's patients and their families. 
And I'm continuing that work. We have a new cohort that we've been recruiting here in um, Southern California, where we are going to also be looking at a lot of exciting biomarkers in this regard. I have a, a new NIH grant to actually work with the Women's Health Initiative Memory Study. So that was a big national cohort with thousands of women who were repeatedly interviewed and some of them went underwent MRIs and collected biosamples across like mostly in the 1990s. And we are working with that big data set now to to answer some of these questions. Um, you know, a lot of my work in Alzheimer's is is uh, around the hypothesis that Alzheimer's is one of these diseases of civilization or or um, a mismatch disease is what the sort of um, evolutionary medicine community refers to this as, such that many of its risk factors might be uh, novel in terms of of human history, and so. It, it connects um, strongly with my work on grandmothers um, because that's really my motivation for being interested in Alzheimer's to try to discern what the cognitive health of older women and their uh, capacity to be um, helpful and active helpers at the nest um, might have been in past human environments. So uh, one of the major ways that the human experience has has shifted in um, very recent times is these this major change in female reproductive life history. Um, the sort of two areas that I look at are, are female reproductive life history and microbial exposures, which again, I know we didn't talk about much, but these are both ways in which the um, the body is is educated and reorganized that can have permanent effects on on health. So yeah, these are, this is a, a very active area in my lab right now, this work in Alzheimer's, and it's sort of multi-pronged, like I said, because we have the Women's Health Initiative um, data and MRI analysis project, and then we also have our local cohort here where we're asking some of the same questions. Uh, just another plug for your incredible website. All of uh, in the show notes, we'll try to put as much contact information as possible. But really, you've you've got to see this website, and you'll be able to find all kinds <laughs> of all sorts of information there. Of course, I'm, I'm sure they can reach out to you if they have additional questions. They'll be able to contact you that way. But our last question, you and you sort of touched on this really in the beginning. You were a theater major, so we imagine that you you may or may not have some talents for the. Uh, hopefully soon to be revived HBA talent show that we'd love to bring back for this year's meetings uh, or future meetings. What talent <laughs> will you be exhibiting for us uh, on stage? Oh, that's funny. You know, I, I these days like to be a little more behind the scenes in, 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 in a way, but um, I, you know, I don't think anyone wants to hear my mediocre trumpet playing, so I wouldn't put you through that at, at the conference, um, although you will be on our home turf here in L.A. I don't know. The last time I, I uh, sort of dipped my toe back into this world was um, actually at our wedding. I I, um, I wrote a um, <laughs> I surprised my my husband with a roast of him. He's an immigrant from from Russia and a mathematician. And so very, very easy to write a uh, sort of updated Fiddler on the Roof uh, roast, and uh, it was performed by some friends of mine, so um, <laughs> some of whom will be at the AABA, so, you know, we'll, or HBA, sorry, so we'll um, maybe, maybe if I uh, brush off my my lyric writing skills, we can have a little uh, comedic Drive roast. Drive them up on so. stage with you, for sure. <laughs> Teamwork yeah. makes the dream work. You gotta have everybody all together for it. Right? Teamwork so it takes, makes the dream takes a bunch of biologists to do it. Love that. Molly, it's been great to talk to you. It's been great to meet you. It's a pleasure. It's been lovely. Thank you. 
Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. It's been nice to meet you. And I look forward to seeing you uh, here in sunny LA. If anyone is uh, out there interested in pursuing a PhD in uh, human biology from an evolutionary perspective, please get in touch, especially those interested in um, the autoimmune components of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm looking to try to develop more work in um, the sort of costs of reproduction in women. So um, as well as, you know, all the topics we discussed today. I have been Chris. This is the Sausage of Science. And I have been with Christina. And you can find us on all the socials. Just look in the show notes. I won't bore you. Thank you to our producers. Thank you to our guests. And thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, guys. Take care.